welcome to Back Talk. Uh, we are two feminist people talking about pop culture this week, and I am Amy Lamb, the associate editor. And uh, this week we're listening to, or we're reading pitches for the magazine and the web. And uh, I wanted to mention that because I want to encourage folks to pitch to us. Uh, um, I mean, if you're listening to our podcast, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you're familiar with our content. But you know, we do cultural criticism. Um, and, uh, I, we especially would love it for writers of color, for LGBTQ folks, for, um, differently abled folks to pitch to us, to get more perspective. So please, uh, visit our website and we have, uh, contributor guidelines. Check it out to see what we're looking for and do not be afraid to pitch. And I'm here with... <laughs> <laughs> I'm Sarah Merck. I'm the online editor at Bitch Media. I like that little pitching PSA. Yes. That's good. Yeah, people, I think, don't understand that Bitch, we, almost everything we publish is from freelancers. We publish like 200 writers a year. So send us your ideas. Yeah, and I just want, I wanted to say that because uh, as a person who is a writer, I, I was once very intimidated to pitch the Bitch. Yeah. And it really kept me from doing it. But and I had I had the skills, but I just didn't think I did. So I'm saying this to encourage folks to be like, you have if you feel like you have the skills, just pitch. You've got the skills. Yes. Send us an email. The worst thing that can happen is we pass on it, and then we say pitch again when you have another idea. Yeah, yeah. So the place for all the info is on our website. You click on about us, and then contributors guidelines. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And so each week we talk about. Um, two pieces of big pop culture news and then we talk about one thing we watch one thing we listen to and uh, one thing we've read but before we do that we kick it off by talking about a personal pop culture moment so sarah what was yours this week i finally saw the film ex machina which came out i think six months ago yeah and uh people have told me maybe a dozen times that i need to go see this film it's a sci-fi film about um sort of a creative genius sort of sinister guy who builds robots in the shape of women um deals a lot with like sexuality gender tension technology i finally saw it and i loved it i thought it was really interesting um i don't love everything about it there's uh you know some problems but it really like innovative interesting film uh, I, I mean, a, a film about a, a, a creepy guy building female robots. Oh, what, what could be problematic <laughs> about that? <laughs> well, yeah, it, that's, I think they actually handled that pretty well. Um, there's more like some of the robots you're just, uh, you, I'm, I, can't, I feel like I can't talk about it without giving anything away. No spoilers. So no spoilers, <laughs> but like maybe you'll like cringe at some points, but most of it's great. Cool. Uh, my pop culture moment is a little sad. Um, but so this week, um, Uggy the dog, who was the star in The Artist, The Artist won Best Picture in 2012. Oh, the, the black and white silent film? Yes, yeah. uh, the French silent film. So one of the stars of it was a little Jack Russell Terrier, and his name was Uggy. Uh, he passed away this week. And I just wanted to shout him out because my own beloved Jack Russell Terrier, Jack, passed away Um about a month ago. Oh, I'm trying not to get teary eyed. So but sorry. yeah, so I read about Uggy passing away and I like lost it. I'm sorry about Jack. Yeah. Oh, poor guy. He was really old, right? Yeah, he was 13 and a half and he had a good life. And I miss him like every single day. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. And you know what? 
the, another thing about Jack Russell Terriers is that they are in pop culture a lot. Uh, they are in a lot of television commercials as well. So it, it's kind of like sometimes out of nowhere, I'm watching some some TV show and all of a sudden there's like a Comcast commercial with the cutest Jack Russell Terrier and then I just have to not lose it. It brings up all the feelings. Yes. Uh, that's one of the, um, the, I guess, downsides of like once having a Jack Russell Terrier and then when it passes, you're like constantly reminded of what a great dog they are. The first piece of pop culture we're talking about this week is the new film Straight Outta Compton, which tells the story of the formation of the internationally famous rap group NWA in the late 80s and early 1990s. Um, the film was the biggest was the biggest ticket seller at the uh, box office last weekend. Um, I think it made $60 million, which is out of control. In the, in the weekend. Yeah. yeah, just over the weekend. Um, and we ran a review on our website um, by a writer named Nigela Moomin, who's a filmmaker herself and writes a lot about um, films for a bitch. And uh, she really liked the film. We're going to give her a call in just a minute to talk about the film. Um, but one thing that is missing that people have been talking a lot about with Straight Outta Compton is that it doesn't cover um, the story of a woman named Dee Barnes, who was assaulted uh, by Dr. Dre, who's a member of NWA, uh, in 1991. They were at a club, and uh, because of like a, a feud that was ongoing, he wound up attacking her, assaulting her, beating her up. Um, she, they settled out of court for that um, a few years later. He pleaded no contest to assault charges, but that whole issue was left out of the film, even though it was happening right at the time that the film was taking place. So Dee Barnes published a big, long account of her story this week on Gawker, and it's really got a lot of people thinking about sort of the role of women in the film and how this story is left out and how the misogyny of some NWA songs is really left unaddressed in the film. So we're going to call up Nigela, talk to her about her experience watching the film and what her take is. You're listening to Compton's very own Ice Cube, Easy e and Dr. Dre. I got to tell you, you are witnessing history. So I was interested in just how they would handle the story and how um, it was a really kind of big moment in, in, in hip-hop and rap and pop culture, so I was interested in how they would kind of um, kind of distill that down into, um, you know, two hours. So that was of interest to me. Um, and when I was watching it, um, I thought as a movie um, it was successful in, um, in terms of the performances are really good, the cinematography was beautiful by Matthew Liberty and the directing was really strong. So I think for the story that it was attempting to tell that it was uh, successful in doing that. Uh, and yeah, that was kind of my initial feelings about the film. And so you grew up listening to a lot of hip hop and rap. You talk about in your review of the film that we published on Bitch about driving around in a car when you were you know, a kid and a teenager listening to the music that came sort of this after N.W.A., the people who were influenced by N.W.A., who were portrayed in the film. Um, can you tell me about, like, your personal connection to the story and how it personally resonated with you watching the film? Okay. Um, personal connection. Um, so, yeah, I did grow up um, in, the, uh, in the Bay Area in Northern California, and um, this music... 
uh, I was born in 1985, so I was really, really young when uh, N.W.A. and Shane Arthur Thompson, that, uh, the, that music came out. Um, so I was more um, influenced by the music that came after it that I mentioned in my articles, such as Dr. Dre, The Chronic, Tupac Shakur, uh, Biggie, DeBrat, um, just artists that came in, in um, kind of the aftermath of um, NWA. And that kind of music we, we uh, grew up listening to. A lot of times um, our parents didn't, you know, want us to listen to it because it had, you know, bad language in it, but we found a way at school or through other um, channels to listen to the music. And uh, we knew that, you know, it definitely wasn't, you know, music that was portraying some women in a good light. Um, But a lot of the times um, women around me didn't uh, see themselves um, as hoes or bitches. So um, they, you know, didn't believe that the music was, you know, talking about them. They thought it was talking about some other woman. Um, so that's really kind of how that music was received a lot of times um, by women around me. And when I was a young girl, um, the the production value of the music, the beats, and just, you know, how it made you want to dance and, you know, all that was like you know, a very strong factor in why, you know, we listen to it. Um, and then right now as an adult, as a woman, you know, I go back and listen to some of her songs and I can barely sit through them just because my thoughts, you know, have evolved on, um, on you know, women, on, you know, how we're represented in mainstream culture. So it's, it's an interesting thing because um, it definitely was a music of my you know, of my childhood, but at the same time, you have to, you know, look at the problematic elements of it as well. Right. In your in your review, you quote a tweet from Ava DuVernay who talks about um, sort of how the complicated relationship that you can have with this music that is that is clearly like insulting to women and demeaning women, but yet you, you love it and you, and you grew up with it. And so that there's there's an interesting contrast there. Yeah, I think a lot, since I've read that, uh, wrote that review, I've gotten a lot of responses from women and men who, you know, really um, connect to that having that personal relationship, a cultural relationship to a specific moment in time, to songs that, um, you know, were demeaning in some ways to certain groups of people, but that were so popular and so ingrained in the cultural moment that feel some kind of connection to them. And I think that's, you know, a a big conflict and something that um, a lot of people are still um, wrestling with. And I think Straight Outta Compton has opened up the conversation again um, for us to have, you know, to really think about this music um, and and its place and, like, you know, the current moment. But because at the same time that it's, you know, um, protesting police violence and giving a voice to some people, it was also, you know, silencing others. Um, So I think that those are the things that people are talking about right now, especially when related to, um, you know, Dee Barnes and the women that were left out of the movie. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about Dee Barnes. So Dee Barnes um, is a a rapper, hip-hop artist herself, who was a television personality in the early 90s, and she published this 
really gripping piece on Gawker this week that explains her her story. And in 1991, um, she was assaulted by Dr. Dre at a club. Um, she was beat up by him, and this is very publicly acknowledged and discussed. And she says in her piece, there is a direct connection between the oppression of black men and the violence perpetrated by black men against black women. And so I was wondering how reading her story this week uh, sort of impacted you and your thoughts on Straight Outta Compton. Yeah, you know, reading that, I read that twice last night, and I was just, yeah, it really affected me uh, reading her words. Um, It made me think a lot about just point of view and storytelling and um, how all films have a point of view and all films have a directorial perspective. And I really think with Straight Outta Compton, um, F. Gary Gray, who I really, you know, I've watched a lot of his films. I think he's a great director, but I think his perspective was really in contributing to the legacy of those men and to really kind of investing in their development in terms of music and, you know, who they are now. Like in the end credits of the film, you see, you know, all the movies that Ice Cube has been in, and then you see Dr. Dre's three steps. $3 billion deal with Apple. So I really think that, that the point of view and the, the way that the angle that they were going for was in uh, kind of pushing a legacy and also pushing a rags to riches story, which is a kind of film genre convention that if, you, um, if you're going with that, I think it would be hard to include the fact that one of your main characters, um, you know, did assault women. And I think that they understood that and because of maybe the studio studio backing and the mainstream like level of the film didn't want to kind of disrupt that story um, that they were trying to tell. But at the same time, I think that um, it's time for us as women, as people who, you know, don't want to stand for that kind of um, sanitizing of that narrative to, like, make our own narratives. I I think about um, Selma, directed by Ava DuVernay, and the fact that the original script for Selma, you know, did not really include a lot of black women in it. Uh, Ava DuVernay is the one who, uh, you know, put a lot of those black women civil rights activists into the film because she knew what big role they had in in civil rights. And she was a black woman, so I think she, you know, that was her her perspective, her point of view as a director. Um, and I think that speaks a lot to the the power that inclusion, you know, having women in in these stages of development and as, you know, directing these movies, like the power that that could have on a story. And the barn story and the, the stories of black women rappers and, you know, women rappers is so captivating that now, you know, I'm a filmmaker as well. So I'm like, wow, I want to tell that story. You know, I want to see a movie about these women who were erased. Yeah, I would love to watch that film about the female rappers of the early 90s and I wonder if it would if I wonder if it will ever get made. And part of her and part of her story, Dee Barnes talks about having trouble finding work and she hasn't been able to find a lot of work in the entertainment industry. So I don't know. Yeah, it's so it's so unfortunate because, you know, like I don't know, it was like a part where she had talked about, you know, she had auditioned for Set It Off, which was a movie that F. Gary Gray 
um, directed years ago, and I actually really like that movie about this band of black female bank robbers. Um, and she didn't get the part because Dr. Dre was in the movie. But I think we're in a different time today where that that kind of um, narrative doesn't really um, work anymore just because we have social media and there's so many people who are writing and contributing to this conversation that uh, what NWA and what Dr. Dre was able to get away with years ago, um, you know, cannot really um, happen today. So I think that's the good, the good, the good in this, I guess. That was writer Nigela Mooman. You can read her review of Straight Out of Compton at bitchmedia.org. And you should totally go look up her work. She's a filmmaker herself. She writes a lot of really great stuff. Look up her name. It's N-I-J-L-A-M-U-M-I-N.com. Nigela Mooman. Go follow her on Twitter and everywhere else. She's great. Okay, so the next piece is about uh, a piece that appeared in The Atlantic by writer Caitlin Flanagan. The piece is called, That's Not Funny, Today's College Students Can't Seem to Take a Joke. And uh, the premise of the piece is that uh, she is at, um, it's kind of like a national talent show for the National Association for Campus Activities. And uh, it's, it's like a showcase that's set in Minneapolis, like a convention where all these performers, like comedians, uh, magicians, uh, other types of acts, kind of uh, do a showcase for more than 350 colleges and their representatives so that they're kind of getting vetted uh, by these schools so that the schools can decide and their, and their campus activities coordinators if they want to hire them to come perform at their college campuses. And Flanagan's thing is that she talks with um, the comedians that are there and how the comedians talk about... Um, that they really have to censor themselves and their art to not be offensive uh, in order to get uh, a gig at these universities. And this is interesting because um, just a couple months ago, uh, Jerry Seinfeld was talking about, and we talked about it here on Back Talk, was talking about how, um, you know, oh, we never play, oh, I, you know, I don't do college campuses anymore. They're just too PC. They can't take a joke. Um, right. And his like 14 year old daughter was calling him out on being sexist. Yeah. He's like, kids these days. Yeah. And he's so dismissive. They're anti free speech. Right. Yeah. yeah they, they frame it as like, a, like oh, you're censoring us and our art. Um, but the, the piece that, Flanagan writes it's, it's like a, it's interesting in that like oh I'm, I'm like in this world where I get to see how um, universities and colleges these days like vet who they're going to pay thousands of dollars these uh, artists and performance performers to come to their campuses um, to see how that's going and then also to get like the artist's um, perspective like and, and she only talks to comedians um, so but the thing about it is that like she is she she herself is also being dismissive of how the campuses, uh, the college representatives work, and um, how she frames it as like we're coddling these youths um, into not being able to take a joke or to take things that might be um, considered offensive. And it's just a bizarre uh, takedown of, of these schools that are just trying to be considerate. Yeah, there's been a lot written about politically correct culture and PC police recently and a lot of it has the same angle of basically bashing young people for um, attempting to be respectful and that's sort of the police this that's that's the way this this article goes too is that saying like can you believe these like young people who are censoring artists and I think it's so funny because you know like 
Um, older generations have always been skeptical and dismissive of what young people are doing. But usually it takes the form of like kids these days, they're so wild and liberal. And instead, there's been this really recent trend with in the, among comedians and people who write about comedy of saying, can you believe young people these days? They're so like uh, conservative and they, they're so... Um, they're so respectful, <laughs> you know? but I and I we, we ran a piece about this article on bitchmedia.org this week by uh, the writer Leela Janelle, and she basically summed up exactly what my feelings are, um, which are okay. So, college students don't want to hire comedians who make racist, homophobic, misogynistic jokes. Why is that a problem? Why is that something we're freaking out about? That seems like a good step forward, you know. And I mean, the conversation around comedy. Uh, often goes in this way where people say, well, you can't censor comedians. They should be allowed to make whatever jokes they want. That is totally true. I think comedians should make whatever jokes they want. But I don't have to listen to them. I don't have to buy a ticket to their show. If they, don't ma- if they make a joke I don't like, I can tell them you know, on Twitter or via email that I don't like them and I'm not going to go to their show. That's also my right. They can, make whatever they-, they can make whatever joke they want. But college students don't have to give them a bunch of money to come perform if they're going to be misogynistic or homophobic or racist. Right. It's like um, the, the piece kind of makes it sound it's like it's very disparaging to college students. And and uh, it's like paternalistic, like, oh, you guys don't know what you actually want. Um, you want like the the comedy that you're getting is, is not as good as it could be. But I mean, this is the system in which they operate, right? Like, if you if you want to make your misogynistic or homophobic or racist jokes, you can do that. But you're not going to do it on these campuses that don't want to hire you, right? I think college students really have the right idea. I'm proud of them for doing this, actually. And I think there's not a lot of people speaking up and saying, "Hey, yeah, college students, you're doing great." Um, jokes that are misogynistic and racist and homophobic that punch down, like, are not funny for a large portion of the audience you know like the war the time of like like privileged white straight dudes being on stage making jokes where everyone else kind of has to like pretend that they're funny or be told that like oh you just don't like it because you're a feminist like hopefully that era is over right and now we can celebrate and hire and pay comedians who punch up who make really great jokes that sort of target the status quo and um target you know, people who are being bigoted instead of just riffing off of tired stereotypes. Yeah, it's possible to be smart in your comedy and and also like, you know, I guess, be quote unquote edgy. Um, I think another critique that Flanagan is saying is that um, this like this puts these students in a bubble where they don't that they don't get to really experience what's happening in the real world. But I think what this what her critique of these students is that, um, yeah, sure, you, the 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 people that are hired to perform on college campuses uh, may not get to perform certain types of material, but it isn't as if like mainstream culture isn't bombarding people, college students too, all the time in every direction, every day. They're not living in a bubble where they're not being offended. They're being offended all the fucking time by mainstream media. And God forbid that they, that their tuition money goes towards performers that they want to see that won't perform, that won't offend them for like an hour out of like a semester. Right. Like if you want to read about, some racist stuff and some sexist stuff like pick up literally any newspaper and read the headlines yeah when you're going to a comedy show uh maybe your money should go to support an artist and performer uh who's making like jokes that resonate with you rather than uh that reinforce the same things you're reading about in the newspaper 
All right, so now we're at the end of the show, and where we talk about one thing we watched, one thing we read, and one thing we listened to that we're excited about. Oh, well, let me grab my book out of my bag. I have it right here. Yeah. I read this book this week. It's really good, and I want to tell you about it. Um, okay, so people who listen to Propaganda will know that I'm a big fan of um, feminist science fiction. So I was excited to find out that there's a new feminist science fiction anthology that is published by PM Press. It's called Sisters of the Revolution. And it's edited by Anne and Jeff Vandermeer. Uh, you might know them. Jeff Vandermeer uh, writes this really great trilogy called the Southern Reach Trilogy uh, that I won't go into here. But if you pick it up, you will never put it down. And Anne v Vandermeer is a Hugo Award winning um, editor of Weird Tales. Um, she's written a lot of sci-fi. So this collection is really great. It includes, um, it goes back like 50 years, I think, and has a lot of names that I didn't know about at all. So it's kind of a cool collection where it has big people that you know about, like Octavia Butler, Ursula Le Guin, um, Nalo Hopkinson, sort of big names that maybe you've read about before, and then a lot of people whose names I'm not familiar with at all. So it's been really cool to work through this anthology and learn about some new feminist science fiction. Again, it's called Sisters of the Revolution, a feminist speculative fiction anthology published by PM Press. Awesome. Uh, the thing that I watched this week is I finally saw Anita speaking the truth because it's on Netflix. So this film was released last year and I saw it um, pop up on my Netflix homepage and I was super stoked. Um, so for those of you who are not familiar with Anita Hill, um, she's an attorney and a law professor and um, she became famous because in 1991, um, Clarence Thomas was going to be um, sworn in to be a Supreme Court judge, and he needed to have a confirmation hearing. And at the time, uh, I was little, so I didn't really understand what was happening. Um, but it was widely understood that he would easily get the confirmation until Anita Hill showed up. And uh, Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, and, and this case is really uh, famous because she brought to light what sexual harassment can look like. Um, and in the confirmation hearings, what happened is that the his, her history is that a decade before, she had worked with Clarence Thomas, Com Thomas for two years. And um, during that time, she also worked with him in the um, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which is the place that you go to when you want to file like an employment discrimination suit, like such as sexual harassment. Right, so there's some irony going on there. It, super meta mind my mind exploded irony um so she went she um had to go to the hearing to testify on his um character and so during this test in testimony she basically just laid it out all of the insane sexual harassment that she faced um by clarence thomas and it's just a lot of like fucked up shit because she's sitting there a black woman uh, and she's facing the senate committee of all white men and like and, you know, half of them are Democrats, the other half are Republicans. And they are, and the Republican men especially, are just incredulous. Like, how, like, uh, if you face this sexual harassment from this man, why did you follow him to your second position? Because she was with him for two jobs. Um, because she wanted to work on civil rights when she was in the Equal Opportunities um, Commission. Uh, and, and, like, they just, they just couldn't understand. They were actually thinking that she was making up these stories of how he harassed her to get attention, like, where in the fuck would somebody want to do this to themselves? Like she was under the microscope and it became a thing where it became a big media circus and it became a thing where it wasn't even like Clarence Thomas who was on trial. It was Anita Hill who was on trial. And 
like for somebody who was really young when this is happening and didn't really understand what was going on, this is like a great piece of history. It, it, it's also an, a really heartening to see like a movement now when she she does a lot of speaking engagements where like young women are wearing t-shirts or holding up signs that says, I believe Anita. Oh, cute. Yeah. And the, and the documentary is like, it's really great. And of course, it's it's really like happy ending-ish. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like, of course, after I watched it, I was just like so mad that this like, that this obvious this person who has a history of sexual harassment is a su- sitting supreme court judge clarence thomas now making the laws of the united states of america <laughs> and uh yeah, you, you know the, the funny thing about clarence thomas is he like never says anything yeah right yeah i uh, think i think they, the la- they like it was like headline news the last time he ever spoke in a hearing <laughs> <laughs> and it was to make a joke about yale Oh, I think <laughs> he's like he finally broke his years long silence to make a joke about an Ivy League school. <sighs> Great. <sighs> OK, well, um, we're going to end the show by listening to a song. We always end the show by listening to a, a song. Um, this one is a brand new one from an album that's not even out yet. It's from the um, Oakland based band Shannon and the Clams, and it's called point of being right this is off their album that comes out uh in september on hardly art records um shannon and the clams are so great if you haven't ever seen them in concert you really should go shannon uh shaw is the front woman of the band and she claims as her uh music and style inspirations um david bowie divine ronnie specter and adam ant those are good influences really it's just a combination of all of those geniuses into one band shannon and the clams Here's the song. Thanks for listening to Back Talk. Thanks! <laughs> I knew that something wasn't right. I gave you space, I was polite. I drove through New York in the rain, but there was itching in my brain. I laughed and smiled all week long. Although I knew something was wrong, I'm forced to turn the other cheek, but that's no Thanks for listening to Back Talk. This podcast is hosted by Sarah Merck and Amy Lamb from Bitch Media. The show is produced by Alex Ward. Bitch Media is a reader and listener supported feminist nonprofit. If you want to support the show and our work, please head over to bitchmedia.org and donate. Bitch Media.